Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, welcome back, uh, college students. How was your spring break? Wow, you're not happy to be back. I get it. Um, I don't. I don't know what you guys uh, do during your spring break. For me, when I was in high school and when I was in college, I would work. I never went on a spring break trip. I just went back and worked. And the company that I worked for uh, was owned by a guy in our church, and um, it was like a. I don't quite know how to describe it. It was kind of like a remod, like we'd remodel houses and do things like that. Well, my job at this company in particular was, uh, was I was a painter, okay? So if you need help painting, enjoy doing that on your own. But um, I was a painter, but I would, get, I would get roped into other things as needed, right? So we would do like mold remediation and uh, carpet installation and demolition and things like that. And so I, I remember in particular, as I was working for this company, there was this one house, um, Side note, this, this will give some context. We had, we had a contract with Coldwell Bank, and so during the housing collapse of 2007, 2008, business was actually great for us because every house that Coldwell, Blank, Coldwell Bank had as a foreclosure, they called us and would say, hey, can you like, come fix it up, make it look fine, and we can put it back on the market hopefully to sell. So there was this one house, and we get a lot of these like, high-end houses. This, this one house in particular was probably at the time like a half-million-dollar house, and it, the basement kept flooding. Like, it would not stop flooding. I mean, by the time that I was done working for this company, this, this house, the basement had two sump pumps. The, the, the walls had been sealed inside and out. So dug around the house, sealed the walls. I mean, we would, but it would keep flooding and we would replace the drywall. We'd suck out all of the like damp insulation from inside the walls. I mean, we'd replace carpet, all this kind of stuff, but it just kept on flooding. So that... When a potential buyer would walk through, they'd have no idea. Now, I'm sure they'd have to disclose it, right? Um, But so that it would look good when a buyer would come through. And even though they had to disclose the water issues, I'm sure, there's no way that a potential buyer would be able to fathom the actual issue that this house had with water because come to find out, what had happened was when the builder was developing this housing development, they had cut through the drainage tile of the field's right behind the housing development and never rerouted the tile. And so literally every time it rained, all the water from those fields would go into the basement of this house. Every time. It would become its own like mini swimming pool. And so while we were able to take care of the symptoms, right? Do the drywall, get the carpet, repaint it, make it look nice. We could take care of the symptoms of this house's water issue there remained a much deeper issue that was far beyond our ability to fix, far beyond our training would allow us to do. Now the reality is, is that our world faces and deals with a very similar challenge. Very similar challenge. And the challenge that our world faces and the challenge that our world deals with is how do we fix what is broken in our world? Or more specifically, how do we make bad people good? How do we make bad people good? And there's one strategy that we as a human race have employed for nearly all of our existence, and that's the strategy of law. The strategy of law. 
It's a strategy of governments, of school systems, of education systems, of nearly every religion besides authentic Christianity. The strategy of law. And the strategy of law to address this challenge of how do we make bad people good people, it's a strategy that says, be good or else there will be consequences to you that you don't like. That's the strategy. And at first glance, it's fairly effective. It's probably the strategy that kept you from speeding at least too much on the way to church this morning. Because you know, if you get caught speeding, you got a ticket. And so the, con- the idea of a consequence of, of having to pay for your speeding keeps you from doing it. It's a strategy of law. But here's the thing. The reality is, is that while a good law can restrain evil, it can never create pure motives. My guess is that the reason you didn't, the reason you didn't speed on the way to church this morning at least too much because we know you did, right? Green Hill's like a drag strip. So, but the reason why you didn't do it too much was because, and that roundabout's fantastic too. So, the reason you didn't do it too much isn't because you love the law. Probably isn't the reason. But it's because you hate the consequences. And so while, while even a good law can change actions, a good law can never change the heart. You see, law can make divorce difficult, but law can never make you love your spouse. Law can discourage murder, but law cannot make you love your neighbor. See, law can impose taxes on you to be able to give money to the poor, but law will never make you generous. Good laws can keep you from stealing, but law can never make you content with what you have. And most of the major world religions are very similar, besides authentic Christianity. You see, Islam has the five pillars, Buddhism has the eightfold path, Hinduism has the four ways, but they're all basically built around the same principle to do these things and you'll be rewarded. And if you don't do these things, then you will be punished. Do all these things. Follow these five pillars, follow the eightfold path, follow the four ways, and you'll achieve heaven. But don't do that and you'll go to hell. But it doesn't work. Because just like replacing the drywall and the carpet in that house could never ultimately fix that house's water problem, a good law can make us feel bad when we fail, but it can never make us Good. And what we might expect at this point in the book of Titus, what we might expect Paul to do at this point has talked a lot about the good things that should be true of Christians, the good things that should be true in the lives of these Cretan believers and the good things that should be true in our lives. He's talked about all of these things. Older men teach younger men. Older women teach younger women. Make sure that you, that you attend a sound doctrine. Make sure that you're not an excessive drinker. Submit to your workplace masters. He's talked about all these things. And we're going to see, he's going to talk about even more things in the rest of the book of Titus. You might expect that Paul, who is talking about good works all the time in this book, you might expect him to use the strategy of law. And you might expect him to tell Titus, hey, Titus, tell those dirty, rotten, Cretan believers that if they do bad things, they'll go to hell, but if they do good things, they'll go to heaven. But in our passage this morning, we get the most extraordinary surprise. Because what Paul says, look at this in verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. For, so because, 
This is a transition word because this is the motivation that Paul is giving that should be behind all of the good works. He's encouraged good works up to this point and all the good works he encouraged them for the rest of the letter. This is the motivation for the grace of God has appeared. God's grace. What is God's grace? God's grace is his kindness. God's grace is his goodwill. God's grace is his unmerited favor. God's grace is his blessing. And Paul says, all of these good works that should be true in the life of Christians are to be motivated because God's kindness has appeared. Perhaps many of you view God not as a kind God, but you view God more like a grumpy rent collector who bangs on your apartment door when the rent is due and you better pay up. Perhaps you view God as someone to avoid because perhaps you don't want to pay what he demands that you give. But what Paul is saying here is that understanding God's grace means understanding that God doesn't come to you first to get something from you, but instead to give something to you. When God comes to you, he doesn't first come to get something from you, he comes to give something to you. You see, God's grace is an appearing grace. What does something do when it appears? It shows up. It's brought from somewhere else. It's here when it didn't used to be here and someone brought it. It's an appearing grace because he is the one who freely brings it to us, regardless of the works of our hands or the words of our mouth. Now, maybe, maybe I'm being a little nitpicky here. I can have a tendency to do that. But the reality is, is that terminology is theology. Like words really matter. And I think our misunderstanding of this grace, of this grace that has appeared, of the grace that God brings freely and gives to us, I think that our misunderstanding of this grace is reflected even in a small way in the way that we talk about salvation. Here's how. I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad if you've, if you've used this phrase before. But we'll talk about salvation and we'll say things like, that someone gave their life to Jesus, or that I gave my life to Jesus. But the reality is that when it comes to our salvation, that I am not first one who gives, but rather one who receives. That I can no more give my life to Jesus than a corpse can give their affections to a lover. But instead, before I can give anything to God, I must receive grace from God. You see, God is the first mover towards us in our salvation. That's not to minimize the, the, the imperative and necessity of our response, of our reception of that, but it is to put people in the right order, that God is the first one who has moved toward us in grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. Now, does this mean, is what Paul is saying, is that all people are saved, whether they have received Jesus Christ as their Savior or not. No, Paul isn't teaching universalism here. 
What the whole teaching of scripture shows us is that salvation in Jesus Christ is available to all and is sufficient for all. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, that God's grace is enough for you, that you can never out the grace of God. You can never be so lost and you can never be so self-righteous that God's grace can't save you or that you don't need God. That God's grace is available to all. It's sufficient to all, for all kinds of people. And it is applied and effective for those who believe. And this grace now serves as our instructor. Do you see that? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, instructing us. You see, grace brings salvation, but grace also brings instruction. And what does the grace of God instruct in the life of believers? What does the grace of God teach believers to do? Look at the rest of verse 12. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Now, this is absolutely incredible. Do you see what God's grace teaches us? to deny godlessness and worldly lust. Now, for us, at first glance, it seems as though Paul is saying to deny the same things, right? Like godlessness and worldly lust, those are the same things. Basically what Paul is saying is deny bad things and pursue good things. Isn't that what Paul is saying? Because we think that godlessness and worldly lust, that's the, those are two different words to describe the same thing that we're supposed to deny. But the reality is that these are actually quite different words. And here's how. You see, the word, the word godlessness is generally probably what you think of when you think of sin. It's denying God. It's a disregard for God. It's a disobedience of God. You could say that godlessness is the sin of direct disobedience. That's generally what we think of when we think of sin. I pursue bad things. I disobey God's commands. That's what sin is. And isn't worldly lust just the same thing? The phrase worldly lust is actually not the same thing. Maybe some of your translations say worldly passions. And this, this word literally means something quite different. What it means is it's not a direct disregard of God. What worldly lust, worldly passions are, is a disproportionate craving. You say, why does that matter? Here's why that matters. While godlessness describes the pursuit of what you would call maybe bad things, worldly passions describes disproportionate desires for anything other than God, even good things. You see, what the grace of God, what Paul is saying the grace of God does is the grace of God frees us from both the sin of direct obedience and the sin of disproportionate desires. My guess is that many of us mainly and only think of sin in terms of direct disobedience, of pursuing or doing something bad, when sin is also disproportionately loving even things that are good. Disproportionately loving even things that may be good gifts from God. It's loving them not as gifts from God, but loving them as God. 
When that happens, when you don't just love your kids, kids are a gift from God. Children are a blessing from the Lord. But when you don't just love your kids, but that they become the orienting center of your life, the plumb line by which everything else is measured, that their desires, their opinions, their happiness, their thoughts of you and your love for your kids becomes the all-consuming, disproportionate love, then you will be enslaved to their opinions and desires, and they will be crushed by the weight of you expecting them to be your God. You see, when you don't just love your spouse, but you overlove your spouse and expect them to be God, then you will always be enslaved to their ability to meet your expectations, to their ability to fulfill you, to perform for you, and they will be crushed by your expectations because you are placing upon them a weight that they were never designed to bear. But when you're gripped by God's grace and when you recognize his unending affections for you in Christ, it frees you from disobedience and disproportionate desires. And it frees you for, the rest of verse 12, frees you for living in a sensible, that word sensible literally means self-controlled. Cody talked about this last week. It frees you for living in a self-controlled way. It frees you for righteousness, uprightness. Literally what this means is justice. It frees you to be able to deny what, what you uh, perceive to be what you deserve for the good of the community as opposed to taking what you want to the detriment of the community. It frees you for sensible, to be sensible, to be righteous, and to live in a godly way in the present age. In the present age, which means that while God's saving grace in Christ should be our enabling power, should be our motivation for good works, the fact that we live in this present age means that it's still going to be difficult. You see, Paul is not naive about how difficult living in this way can be in a fallen world. The fact is that we'll still struggle because we live in a fallen world and we fight a flesh that has not yet been glorified. But because the grace has, of God has appeared to those who have believed, we can join John Newton, who once profoundly said, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I hope to be. But by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop there because the Christian motivation for godly living isn't just fueled by a grace that has appeared. Notice in this passage, there are two appearings, one that has appeared, but it's also fueled by an anticipation of a glory that will appear. Look at verse 13. So we live in this, we deny godlessness and worldly lust, and we live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, all throughout Scripture, you see that any time someone encounters the glory of God, that the consistent response is fear and trembling. 
is begging for mercy, is falling on their face, saying, I am undone. I am a sinful person, the presence of a holy God. This is why God refused to show his full glory to Moses, because he knew that for, for Moses to see the face of God, that anyone to see the face of God, anyone to see the full glory of God would be annihilated in his presence. See, all throughout scripture, the glory of God is both an unmatched beauty and a terrible threat. But notice what Paul's saying here. He's saying that when you've received the kind grace of God in Christ, his glory, which was once a threat that would annihilate you, his glory, the appearing of his glory, becomes a blessed hope. How can the glory of God, which was once a terrible threat, become a blessed hope? become a motivating force for our good works. How in the world can that happen? It's because Jesus Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead, our judge was judged so that we could be acquitted, making the glory of God not a terrible threat, but a blessed hope. That as we anticipate the appearing of the glory of God, that we do not anticipate annihilation, but we anticipate an enjoyment of the glory for which we were saved. Which means that not only do we live in light of what has come, but now we live in light of what is yet to come. And right here in the middle, like as Paul is talking about this great grace that has appeared and this glory that is yet to appear, he breaks into this kind of like one sentence doxology in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Here's what he says. He, referring to God our Savior Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession, eager to do Good works. You see the order there. He saved us from lawlessness for himself. This is key. This is key. You see, with all this talk of good works in the book of Titus, it's so easy to get the order wrong. It's so easy to get the order wrong. But throughout scripture, the order is that God first rescues his people for himself and then gives them his commands. He rescues them, and then he gives them his commands. Remember in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt under the tyranny of a foreign taskmaster? Do you remember what happened, and what does God do? Does he, does he give Moses the Ten Commandments and say, hey, take these to, the, to my people who are, who are in Egypt and tell them, hey, if you follow these rules and you live good moral lives, then maybe we'll see if God will reward you by getting you out of here. Does he do that? No, he doesn't do that at all. He doesn't give them the Ten Commandments and then wait to see how well they can fulfill them before he brings them out of Egypt. No, what does he does? He brings them out of Egypt. And why did he bring them out of Egypt? How? It's when the people of Israel stood under the blood of a lamb. The angel of death saw the blood and passed over his blood-covered people that they were brought out of Egypt. 
And then what did God do? He brought his blood-bought people who had been freed from the tyranny of death. And then he brings them to the mountain and says, now because you have been freed, this is how you should live. He didn't give them his law so that they would be rescued. He gave them his law because they had been rescued. And as a rescued people, he then tells them how to live. Some of you are trying to work for your rescue. Some of you are still trying to be good enough for God to want you. Some of you are still trying to clean yourself up, to fix yourself up, to do all the right things, to live a good moral life, and maybe I'll be accepted by God, that hopefully one day when I die and I stand before God that on, the, on the cosmic scales in heaven that my good works will outweigh my bad works. You see, you're getting the order all wrong. You don't work so that God will accept you. No, Christians do good works because we have been accepted. God didn't just save them from slavery, he saved them for worship. And if you think that's just an Old Testament thing, look at Ephesians chapter two. It says this, for you are saved by grace through faith and this not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not anti-working, it's anti-earning. But the Christian life should be the life defined by good works, not so that we will earn God's acceptance, but because we have been accepted by God in Christ. The Christian life and doing good works does not start with modifying your behavior. The Christian life starts by being gripped by grace and being eager for glory. Which means that when we fail to do good works in the Christian life, when we fail to live according to our new identity in Christ, when we fail to deal radically with sin, it's simply a symptom of a heart that doesn't understand the grace that we've been given and that doesn't understand the glory that's yet to come. A few weeks ago, my family and I went to Madison, Wisconsin. We, were, we went to a concert and we stayed the night and then kind of swung through Madison and uh, stopped by at one of our sister churches in the network, Doxa, up in Madison. And um, the day before, Jude and I were at Sidecar and I was asking him, hey, is there an animal that we haven't seen at a zoo that we've been to that you want to see? And he's always wanted to see the red pandas. And so red pandas, if you don't know, aren't like normal pandas. They're way small. They're kind of like, like fluffy, cute, small dogs. You, would, you want to own one. If you see a red panda, you'd think, I want to own that. And so we had not seen a red panda yet. Uh, been to several zoos, haven't seen them. We went to Arizona, thought they had red pandas. They do not. That was disappointing. Well, it turns out there is a free zoo in Madison that has red pandas. All right, so, huh. The day before we're going, we find out, oh, there's, there's red pandas where we're going, okay? So we, after church, we go get lunch. We go to this uh, free zoo to see the red pandas. And we walk into the gate, 
several gates. The gate that we walked into, the first exhibit was, uh, was the tiger exhibit. And so our kids went over there. We walk over there. Everyone's looking for the tiger, right? Where's the tiger? Is it sleeping? Is it behind the rock? Whatever. Everyone's looking for the tiger. All that I can look at is the fence. Because I'm, I'm standing there and I'm like, we're at this free zoo and that's a pretty regular looking fence <laughs> for this tiger exhibit. Like, I don't know, you know, like I was looking, I'm like, I think I could put that fence up. Like I could go to Menards, I know where the stuff is and I could make that fence, you know, and that's a little unsettling, right? When you're at, I'm like, that's a free zoo fence. And so, so anyways, so we go, we see the red pandas, we kind of making our way back. We visit the giraffe whose name is Eddie. Uh, it was his birthday that day. Turns out, as, I'm, as I was trying to remember this giraffe's name, I'm looking it up. Turns out in 2014, Eddie's friend Wally, the other giraffe, kicked a lady in the face. <laughs> now, if you, now, before you go, wow, she's, yeah, she, jump, she jumped the fence. But when you look at the fence, it was, again, it's free zoo fence. And so this is not, this is not a... Hard fence to jump. You don't even have to jump it. You can just like walk right through it. And like, and the, here's the thing. These are free zoo giraffes. Like these aren't like, you know, these aren't stuck up giraffes. These are like gangster giraffes. Like they lived on the street. Like, so Wally kicked her in the face. She was okay. But we looked at, we saw Eddie, wished him a happy birthday. And we're, we're making our way back and we go over to the lions, which is kind of on the way, right? And these lions, I'm, man, these lions are the biggest lions I've seen at any zoo, no matter how expensive it was to get in. Like, these are like C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, you know, lions. And everyone's just like, I mean, they're crazy. And, but all I can look at is the fence. I'm like, there's another regular looking fence for these massive behemoths of a lion. Like, I'm just glad they don't have thumbs. They could just rip that fence right off. Like, that's a fence that I could put up. Free zoo fence. Those who have been gripped by God's grace. Those who have been gripped by the grace that has appeared and that the glory that has yet to appear. Those who understand the greatness of their sin and the glory of their Savior. Don't handle sin with regular looking fences. Here you have these massive dangerous cats on these regular looking fences. You see, when, when you are gripped by God's grace, when you are enthralled with who he is and what he has done, you can't help, not out of the heart of I'm trying to earn God's approval, you can't help but walk away and go, why would I live in such a way that would dishonor the one who has saved me? Why would I live in such a way that dishonors those that the one that I love has made? Why would I work in such a way that dishonors his name? Why would I pursue godlessness and worldly passions? when I've been given a beautiful feast. Those who have been gripped by God's grace don't ruin their appetite for God by nibbling at the table of the world. Now those who are gripped by grace, by the grace that has appeared and by the glory that's yet to appear will be eager for good works because you are gripped by the good work that Christ has done for you. Those who have been gripped by God's grace should be those who deal most radically with the sins of disobedience and the sins of disproportionate desires. Now, before you get confused, the question this morning is not 
What are the bad things I should stop doing and what are the good things I should start doing? That's not the question this morning. Don't jump straight to that. That's not the question. The question is quite simply, are you gripped by God's grace towards you in Christ? And do you anticipate, are you eager for the glory that will appear? And if so, what should your life look like in light of this grace that has appeared and this glory that is yet to appear? What should your life look like? That's the question. Let's pray. Oh God, would we be gripped by your grace towards us in Christ? Would we be fueled, motivated, eager to do good works, to live like Christians? Oh, because we're constantly looking at the grace that you have shown us in Christ. Would our eyes constantly be fixed on you, Jesus? Would our delight in our salvation and our delight in our Savior be the motivating grace for our holiness, for our purity, for our love towards others, for the hard work that we do at our work, that we would work like we have been saved by God. Oh, we thank you for the grace that has appeared in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.